in week three of our series, Summer Sessions, and this is an opportunity for us as speakers and myself to be led of the Holy Spirit and just have no real agenda and just kind of go with the flow. So that's what I'm going to attempt to do over the next couple weeks, and today we're going to talk specifically about the idea of prayer. Now, how many of you think you have a pretty good prayer life? Raise your hand. Everybody, uh, some of you are like, I'm not sure what I should do. It's all right. We all know we should be praying, and I don't think some of us are praying as well as we want to be, but that's okay. We're going to get to that here in just a second. So Jesus has accomplished so much for us, and if he's accomplished all of this by his death, burial, and resurrection, how should we pray? That's a real question. This question reveals a level of understanding that all of us have of the gospel and the person of Jesus. See, we all ask this question from time to time. How should I be praying? What should I pray? What manner in which should I pray? And I've asked this question many, many times, and I, I think that's why I've gotten a pretty, good, a pretty good answer. In fact, I want to put up an idea that, well, this, this question often, when it's answered, creates in us a new understanding of a codependent relationship that we might have with God. You might think that's odd to say, how, come on, pastor, how can you have a codependent relationship with the creator of the universe? Aren't we supposed to be dependent on him? Well, codependency in its simplest definition is wanting someone else to do for you what you know you should and could do on your own. See, parents of overprotected children, they understand this a little more than others because little Johnny can't get something done and they go do it for him. Little Sally can't get something done and they go do it for her. And out of an attitude of love, what we've done is impaired the child. And we've told the child this idea that they're inept, that you can't possibly do this on your own, little Johnny, little Susie, so I'm going to do it for you. I'm going to fix it for you. And I think that there's a good motive there. Parents want to love their children. Dads want to love their kids. But sometimes you step in too far and you create a codependency where the child now thinks that they should lean on their parents when they should actually be doing something of their own. And it's, it's, a, it's a struggle at times. And it, it actually creeps into our religious life. See, if we have a codependent, codependent relationship with God, and I believe many of us do, most of it comes from a religious structure that has learned how to beg God. We've learned how to beg God rather than actually come to him in faith-filled relationship. We've learned how to go to, the, to our prayer closet, to our prayer room, to, the, to his throne room, and we've learned how to beg him, God, I need this, God, I need that, God, will you do this, God, will you do that? There's no development of relationship. See, sometimes it's things we should do for ourselves. Sometimes it's issues that are already lined out in Scripture, and we run to God in our prayer life and say, God, fix it. Do it for me. Show me the answer, Jesus. And he's like, I gave you this book with all these answers. Why don't you just read it? I think for many of us, we go, oh, you know, Jesus, I want the quick fix. Try to get something, and God to reaffirm something in us that he's actually already stated. And I think many times it's because we've, we've lost trust really, in who he is. Our codependency with God tends to revolve around crises. In fact, most of us, that's what our prayer life revolves around. If it wasn't for a crisis, we wouldn't come to him at all. If it wasn't for foxhole prayers where we're stuck and we feel the battle of life waging and we say, okay, God, if you get me out of this situation, I'll finally serve you, but God, you got to answer me. And apart from a crisis, Apart from a need to be delivered in the moment, most of us don't have much of a prayer life. I've been in that situation. I've been in that place where I thought, 
The crisis of the moment is all that mattered. And all I could do was go to God's throne and say, here, I need these things right here, right now. Jesus, please help. And there's a level of prayer there. But it's not at all what the Bible intends for our prayer life to look like. In fact, it becomes very, 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 very codependent. There's nothing sometimes to our prayer life other than moving from one crisis step to another. One crisis step to another. You know, there's an entire book in the Bible that looks like this. The book of Judges, is a, the, the main theme is that every man did what was right in his own eyes. Judges typifies people doing what they want, getting in a whole bunch of trouble, crying out to God and saying, God, you've got to fix these issues. God delivers them. Once they're delivered, no relationship is established. And they fall back into that same cycle. It's literally a historical account of God's people being codependent on his presence. Rather than doing for themselves, rather than learning, rather than developing, rather than growing in faith, they do what they want to do. And the moment it doesn't work out, they cry to heaven, God, forgive us. God, fix it. God, deliver us. He delivers them. And they go right back into the same hole. In fact, I think many of us get caught in that. If God is sovereign and knows all things and has already done and accomplished everything for us, then why and how should we pray? If we believe that, right, at the cross, Jesus accomplished everything. He did it. It's a finished work. Nothing more needs to be done. All of the account of heaven is at our access if we'll just learn how to access it. So why then and how should we pray? Most of, of life's issues stem from the fact that we're not very good at being relationally oriented. Now, I struggle with this. I like my own little bubble. I like my four and no more, my little family. I like that a lot. I like that little nucleus. But at times, we become so estranged from what it is to develop real relationships, it becomes more about what I can get out of somebody. Well, I like you because you like me. I like you because you make me feel good about myself. Man, all kinds of dating relationships happen this way. A young man feels good because of the girl that he has on his arm and how she makes him look. And guys, that shouldn't go away, but that shouldn't be what the relationship is built on. How many parents do we see that once their children leave the nest, once they become empty nesters, they sit at Applebee's and they got two words to share with each other in a, an entire 60-minute meal? They got nothing to say to each other because no real relationship was built. What was built was feeding each other's needs over a lifetime rather than building true and honest relationship. Most of what happens in life should be about us building and, and cultivating connections, cultivating relationships. Because all of our needs are met in Jesus, our prayer life can and should be more relational and more meaningful. Okay, because Jesus conquered death, hell, and the grave, because Jesus opened the windows of heaven, because Jesus is our access point to everything that God has for us, everything about our prayer life should be relational and it should be meaningful. But how many of us can say that from day to day? We're going to take a brand new look at prayer. A brand new look at prayer. I'm going to focus on two very important points, and I think we see them developed in the Lord's Prayer, and we'll get to that in a moment. But the question is very simple. Why do you pray? Why do you pray? If you didn't need anything from God, would you even come to him? If you didn't need to answer for him to answer a question, if you didn't need for him to answer a need or desire, if you didn't need a fix or a healing, how would you go to God? How would you go to the throne? Is the only reason that you come to God for him to answer prayers so that you don't have to continue to trust him? Uh-oh, it's getting dark in here real quick. 
Come on, pastor, it's supposed to be happy day. It is, it's happy Father's Day, and hopefully we'll correct some bad doctrine in your life, and you'll go out of here with a little bit of ammunition to spray against the enemy. But the fact is that we have to understand that if the only reason we come to God is for him to fix all of our problems, if the only reason that we come to the throne in prayer is to throw up Hail Mary prayers and hope that he intervenes on our behalf, that we're missing out on a huge chunk of what it is to have a proper prayer life. We're missing out on a huge chunk. The greatest thing that God offers us is relationship. The greatest thing that God offers us is relationship. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to John chapter 8 and verse 19, and then Colossians chapter 1 and verse 15. So if God offers us the greatest, or if if the greatest gift God offers us is relationship, I've got to ask a question. When Jesus came to the earth, what did Jesus do? What did he do in in relationship to the Father? Did he say, I've come to the earth, I've come in human form, flesh and blood, so that God will finally do something for you? Or did Jesus say, I've come in flesh and body, I've come, the embodiment of God here on planet earth, so that you might know God? Which is true? Well, we're going to find out here in John chapter 8 and verse 19. It says, then they asked him, when, where is your father? So these are his disciples, again, group of people learning about Jesus just like us, and they ask him this simple question, where is your father? And you can see Jesus react in one of the most sarcastic comments in the scriptures. He says, you don't even know me or my father. He responds in a very flippant manner. What do you mean? This this is a stupid question to ask, guys. I've been with you this long, and you're going to ask me where my father is? Jesus replied, if you know me, you would know my father. He literally says to them, if you had an honest understanding of me, the person of Jesus, then you would know my father. You wouldn't have to worry or wonder where my father is or who my father is. You would know he's standing right in front of you, that the, that the image, the expressed image of the father is right in front of you in the person of Jesus. But so many of us, because our prayer life is broken and we don't have real relationship, we wonder where God is all the time. God, where are you at in my situation? God, where are you at in this moment? God, where are you at when I'm hurting? God, where are you at? Where are you at? Where are you at? And rather than recognize when you know Jesus, the Father's staring you right in the face. Colossians chapter 1 and verse, in verse 15, the Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Listen, the Son Jesus Christ, the one who bled and died on the tree, is the image of the invisible God, that God who carved the borders of the oceans with his fingers, that God who flung the stars to hang in their sockets, that God whose name is unpronounceable, that God who we can't even put into good terms and words to express who he is, that God who we have philosophized, philosophized, we've had tons of philosophy over generations and generations, that God who has literally filled one hermeneutical stack of books after another, that God is the expressed image in Jesus Christ. It says the firstborn of all creation. So before creation even started to fuse itself together, there was the expressed image of God laid out in his son. He knew that he would need a rescue plan for humanity. And because of that, this three-part being that Jesus would exemplify the very person of God on planet earth. So when you know Jesus, when you say you're a Christian, you're a Christ-like one, you're a little Christ. When you say you've taken on that moniker of knowing Jesus, you can't dismiss the idea that you know the Father. What, com- what comprises the largest amount of your prayer time? 
How are you spending time with God reveals much about your relationship with him. However you're spending time with him. Again, if it's a litany of lists that you're asking for, much like a kid crawling up on Santa Claus's lap, that tells you a lot about the relationship. If your relational time with God in prayer is coming to him intimately, like a man or a woman will do with their spouse before they're married, that's a different story. It shows a little bit different about your relationship. Now, my wife and I have been married for a while. Oh, Lord, it's almost 15 years. Feels like it, it just flew by. It feels like it was yesterday. Hallelujah. Sometimes. Sometimes it feels like it's been forever. But we all know that, any of us that have been married. But we see this in the life of, of our, in our prayer life. That if I went to my wife and I said, listen, honey, I've got a list of things to do today, and I'd really like you to accomplish them with me. We need to wash the dishes. I need you to iron my clothes. We need to wash some of my clothes. There's all kinds of things we just need to get done. If that was the extent of our relationship, how quickly do you think our marriage would break down? Oh, my goodness. It'd be over so quickly. But if I come to her and I know that she's stressed and I love on her and I dote on her, well, that builds some of the relationship. If she can see my attitude and my heart and where I'm at and she can see when I'm high and when I'm low because she's drawing on that relationship, then we can have an honest discussion. But until that happens, it's just wishes and wants and lists and it's not really a connection point. Prayer is the one thing that we know we all should be doing, but it's the one thing that most of us have no clue how it should be done. Now, most of us know the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And if you're Protestant, uh, lead us not into temptation. Oh, I'm sorry, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And now if you're Protestant, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory now and forever, man. Right? They added that part on because they didn't want the Lord's Prayer to end with evil. So we added on a little extra as life went on. But Jesus had no problem with it. Deliverance from evil, full stop, that's it. Hallelujah, thank you, Jesus. So we need to understand what that prayer really looks like. Well, 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 16 through 18 says this, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks, for it's God's will, I mean, for this is God's will, uh, for you in Christ Jesus. In everything give thanks, pray without ceasing. This is God's will in Christ that you would learn to have such a devout prayer life that you are praying continually. Now that doesn't mean muttering under your voice like a crazy person. That doesn't mean, you know, whispering who stole my Honda under my, your voice all the time so you sound spiritual. What that does mean is that we understand an attitude of prayer. You know that I am in constant communication and fellowship with my wife even when she's not around? I think about her. In fact, my wife and I, when we first got married, we dated, or sorry, we were friends for five years while we were dating, really before we were dating, and then we dated for a few years. So we had a long history together. I thought about her a lot. I still do. And this isn't a ooh, gushy moment. This is practical. Listen, if, you, if your mind and your focus is on someone, that is building and developing the, rela the relationship even when they're not in the room. But we have to learn how to do that. So there's two points here that I want to get to, intention and attention. Because prayer is our most personal endeavor, it hinges on these two very main points, intention and attention. Intention, briefly, briefly listed, is the idea of a common thing intended or an aim or a plan. It's an action or a fact of intending. Intention might even talk about a man's intention to marry someone, to marry his, his bride 
And also, or lastly, there's an idea of intention in medicine that when you intend to or you intend a wound to heal, that there's a very specific definition that you want that wound to get better. See, each of these definitions play a big part in how we use our prayer life and how we enter into our prayer life. Prayer first hinges on an intended aim or plan. You can't come to God without a focused intention. You can't come to God without an intended aim or plan, that you come to him knowing you're you're developing and building a relationship. We all start out our prayer life with an intention, and what is it? Are you intending to go to God just to give him a list and hope that he, he fixes your issues, wipe your hands of it, and walk away? Are you intending to go to God to develop and cultivate relationship? The design the, the, the purpose of this relationship, it's a true marriage of one person to another. It's a marrying of two into one. It's an intimate relationship with an intentional communal moment. And in the middle of it, healing happens. So first, prayer should be an intentional marrying together of ourselves with an almighty God that in the midst of it brings healing, brings healing. Any prayer time or attitude without proper intention will always result in wishing our prayers. If we come to Jesus and we don't have a focused intention, when we come to him, it'll be like wishing our prayers. We hope it works out, but we really don't know because we don't have a focused intention. In fact, in the Message Bible, it says it this way in James chapter 1, verse 5 through 8. You go ahead and turn there. James 1, 5 through 8. James describes it the best. And he says this. If you don't know what you're doing, which is most of us in life, come on, most of us have been there. We don't know what we're doing. We couldn't figure it out on our own if we had to. He says, pray to the Father. He loves to help you. You're going to get his help. And you won't be condescended to when you ask for it. Okay, so there's a difference here. When we're codependent, we run to God and say, God, do for me what I, would lo- what I should be doing for myself. But when we understand the relationship we should have in, f- in prayer, we come to God, we come to Jesus, knowing that he's a good father, that he helps, that he loves to help, that we won't be condescended against. But most of us, our intention is so, is so small, Our intention is is so lacking focus that when we come to God, we throw our prayers out and we hope that he fixes one of them. We throw out a list of prayers and we say, well, God, whichever one works, go ahead and shoot that one down because your ways are above our ways, hallelujah, and I couldn't possibly understand. No, James says that's wrong. James moves on to say this, ask boldly, believing without a second thought. People who worry their prayers are like wind-whipped waves. I love this scripture. People who worry about their prayer life, people who aren't focused and have a focused intention in their prayer life, they are like those who are being moved by all these externals just pushed by the winds and the waves. They've got no real focused intention. The Bible says, ask boldly. James says, ask boldly. Ask without a second thought. How many of us come to God in prayer and when we ask, we are so intentional that we ask without a second thought, that we say, God, I know you're gonna do it. I don't need to think another thought about how you're gonna operate in this mess in my life. I know you're gonna fix it. See, Jesus operated this way. If you remember, his friend Lazarus had died and Lazarus' sisters were told of Jesus that if you believe in me, you never really die. 
fact, he said it to one of them, and she repeated back to him, God, I understand what you said, but my brother's been dead. And he's like, come on, lady, don't you get it? I meant that if you understood who I am, if your intention was focused, you'd know this isn't the real death he's experiencing. Jesus walks to the mouth of the tomb, says, open the tomb, and the first thing out of their mouth is, Jesus, he's been dead for a while. This dude probably stinks. They understood what we might get in a little bit of a word picture, that this man was wrapped in linen coverings from head to toe. He had been dead so long that there's likely his bodily fluids started to excrete out of the outer layers of the linen garments. He not only stunk, he looked and was mummified and wrapped. And Jesus stands in the mouth of this open tomb. And what does he say as he prays? He says, God, I don't pray because I wonder if you hear me. I pray for these idiots around me who don't even know what's going on. Go look it up. The word idiots in the King James. (laughs) Maybe, I don't know. But Jesus says plainly, I don't pray for myself and my sake that you hear me. No, I pray because these need to learn a lesson. He was so intentional. And then what did he do? He stood in the mouth of that cave and called life to a lifeless body. And that man came out, reanimated life in him, and he looked bound still with death all around him. He still smelled and stunk of those outer linen coverings. He waddled his way to the opening of the cave, and they were so in awe and wonder that Jesus literally looks at the crowd and says, what's wrong with you? Untie him. This is your brother. They were so in awe of what happened by intentional prayer that Jesus forces them to to reevaluate, to to reimagine the situation and says, your brother is free. James 5 verse 8, don't you think you're going to get anything from God that way or anything from the master that way? Adrift at sea, keeping all your options open. Most of us, if we were faced with that dire situation where a man had been dead for a few days and the spirit of God was inspiring us to call life to a dead situation, most of us would stand there and say, well, God, if it's your will, please, Holy Spirit, would you will, thank you, Lord Jesus, Father God in heaven, be done. Hallelujah, Lord Jesus, we know you know better than we do, so whatever you do, it's okay. No focused intention, no direct intention not understanding the promises and the will of God, not understanding the relationship to its deepest core, that the man who sits on heaven's throne knows your name and you don't have to ask of him wimpy prayers. You can come boldly and say, whatever's dead, come to life in Jesus' name. Our attention, our attention is taking notice of something. It's regarding of something with special intent or interest. It's dealing with something with special attention-filled actions that we come to God with our attention as well. Attention as prayer is something or someone of interest and importance that requires special care-filled action. When moments of attention consume our life, we start to beg God by default. When our attention is moved away from the throne of God, when our attention is moved away from the promises of God, when our attention is moved by the externals of life, we start begging God. God, please do it. Please do it. I hope you'll do it. God, I hope you'll answer me. God, if you only would, if you only could, God, please. Rather than our attention being so focused that we know he hears us, 
Our intention is so focused and our attention is on the things of heaven that we don't even worry about what's going on around us. We know the answer to the problem has already been given. When will we come to God with that type of a prayer life? The intended focus and proper balance must be maintained by an intentional first segment of our prayer life that we go to God. That's why our Bible says this way, this way. Jesus taught us to pray. Our Father who art in heaven, I know who he is. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be thy name. God, I know your character. You are holy. Hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God, I am calling all attention of heaven to earth today in my prayer life. And then he goes on and talks about our needs. But most of us skip right to our needs, not understanding what heaven already provides. Most of us go right to our needs and our want list rather than understanding that heaven has already declared you victorious, that heaven has already made a way. And so we hope that we catch God's ear in the midst of all the confusion in our lives. We hope that we catch him in a moment of benevolence and that he'll be merciful to us rather than boldly going to the throne and understanding with full intention and our attention focused on heaven that he is a God who hears us, that he is a God who loves us, that he is a God who answers every prayer with the power of heaven backing his every word. This is prayer. This is what it is to pray with God. It's not a flippant thing that we do. It's not settling back in a, in a chair and putting on some praise and worship music and just hoping that God does something nice for us. Like we're going to the spiritual spa. God, come massage me a little bit. Mm. Got it right, Jesus. Right there. All right. Gotcha. Yeah. No. Our prayer life is a war stance that we stand in a battle-ready position between this earth that is falling away and heaven that has all the answers, that we stand in proxy to the very throne of God, that we stand understanding his kingdom come, his will be done on this earth, right here, right now, through me first, and then by extension, the world around me. That we so focus ourselves that we can't lose because our only intention is to wrap ourselves in the glory of heaven and our only attention is what heaven is raining down on God's people, that we understand him so intimately and so deeply that we don't wonder, that we don't hope, that we don't wish that he'll come through, but we know he hears from heaven, that we know he listens to our prayers, that we know that on his right and mighty arm is the whole force of heaven's armies and anything that we would have need for, he comes and he delivers. Balance is the key. Balancing this whole thing out is the key in our prayer life. Listen, Consuming thoughts of our present and pressing needs do have a place in our life. They do. You're going to come to God at times, knees knocking. You don't know how to get through the next moment of life. That's a for real human emotion that we come sometimes fearful and wondering, God, do you hear me? But we have to learn to recalibrate our brain and our mind. We can't be one, as James says, who's wind whipped, who's pushed this side to that side to hopefully find target, to hopefully find our true north. No, no, we are steadfast. We know where our anchor is. We know where true north is. We know that we can call on heaven's throne and we will be answered. 
Someday we need to get as bold as Jesus and stand in the most dire situations and circumstances and say, God, I'm not praying for these idiots. I'm sorry, I'm not praying for myself, but I'm praying for these idiots around me who don't even know that you hear me. God, I'm praying the way I'm praying and as strongly as I'm praying because there's a world around that doesn't believe, but I know that when you show off and show up in my situation, that their lives will in turn be changed. God, I speak life to that dead situation. When are we going to be loud enough, strong enough, bold enough to look at our communities, this community, the Quad Cities, see the places that are broken, the people that are hurting, those who are wandering, and speak life, to have such an intentional prayer life that we don't wonder and hope that God hears us, but that we access heaven's throne the moment our lips are open. Balance is pivotal. Balance is pivotal. How are you coming to God's throne when you pray? Have you thought about it in those terms that when you open your mouth and however you do it, whether it's the Our Father, whether it's a traditional prayer, whether it's the Hail Mary, I don't care how you do it, maybe not the Hail Mary, but maybe if it's another prayer. We teach our kids formal prayers when they're young. Teach them the glory be. Many of you are Catholic or Catholic background. You've heard this prayer. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit who was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be a world without end. Amen. Why do we teach that prayer to those young boys? Because it settles in them an intention. They know who they're praying to. They're praying to the God of the universe who was and is and ever shall be. That there's nothing in life too big for him. That there's nothing in life too grand. That he spans past, present, and future. In their little minds, we have already rehearsed the idea that God covers all and is all. We, we feed them these prayers so that someday when they pray on their own, they can use their own words and their own thoughts and their own intentions to call on the God of heaven to answer them right where they're at. Listen, today I wanna to encourage you. I wanna encourage you, today is your day to learn how to pray. Today is your day to just say, Jesus, I give it all to you. Today is your day to say, God, I'm not gonna pray weak prayers ever again. God, I'm gonna come to your throne bold. I'm gonna come to your throne with intention. I'm gonna come with my whole intention on everything that heaven has for me. God, I'm not gonna allow this life to pull me in one direction or another. God, I'm coming to you with my whole heart. Today, I wanna encourage you Take a shift in your prayer life. Take a shift in how you see God and how you experience heaven. Take a shift in what this looks like. Become balanced in your prayers, amen.